0: Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at these parables in the book of Matthew. And I ask you to just teach us what you would have us to see from them in your son's name. Amen. Matthew 13, starting at verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. For while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, there then appeared tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? From whence then has have had tares? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servants said unto him, Will you then that we go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say unto the reapers, Gather you first the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So we're going to stop there and we're going to skip over to verse 37 because this is where Jesus interprets this parable. We don't have to guess at what it means, even though the idea is very obvious. So we're going to go to 37. Actually, we'll start at verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of the world. The son of man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into the furnace of the fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the father who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we see this parable of the ter- wheat and the tares. And God says he's harvest. He's going to harvest, but he's going to spread good seed. And this is the seed of the word of God, the gospel, people getting, getting changed and becoming new creations. And Satan is right within the very church, within the world, is going to put tares. Now, in case you don't know, tares initially grow and look very similar to wheat. Uh, you need to know, be an expert to know the difference and they knew the, the individuals in the parable looked and saw there's just enough difference that we can pick out that there's bad seed. There's the tares. And he says, don't take up the tares in case you hurt the wheat. And this is something we have to be aware of. And I've shared this with us at various times. In the church, in the very church, there are people who look like Christians, maybe even act like Christians a little bit but are not Christians. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. They're not going to produce fruit. They're not going to be ultimately uh, producing righteousness in their life. But when you look at them, they look very much like a Christian in their day-to-day life. And these are the ones that are good at following rules. They they won't smoke, drink, uh, and all these other things that the quote-unquote Christians are supposed to do. They'll do everything except for share the gospel, probably don't read the Bible very much, but they look like good people. You know, you look at them and say, wow, they're really good. They're they're Pharisees and scribes. They look good, they follow rules real well, but they don't have life. And I've seen them over the years in in the Christian church where you talk to them and it's just obvious they don't know Jesus. And And you'll ask them the simple questions, how do you get to heaven? Well, you gotta be good. You know, that is the answer of the tear be good do more good than bad because they don't know the word of god they don't know that god is wanting to forgive and this is the sad thing when you when you talk to people you talk to enough people about jesus and you'll hear so many people that don't know god they're they're looking for that freedom they're looking for forgiveness and they almost feel like you've got to beg god and plead with god to get forgiven it's not—it's not a gift of grace. You've got to do enough good so he'll smile upon you, and treat you well. And they don't understand that God desires to bless us. He desires to lift us out of the miry pit and put us on the path. He desires to give us, give us the strength to walk through this life. And this is what he says: God has planted good seed, and the tares come up. And he's. The angels, you can picture the angels, they're just wanting to clean up this mess. God, you put out good seed and look at all these bad things. And sometimes we in the church want to do it. Let me tear up all these bad, bad things in the church. And we need to be, just be careful and say, God, you're going to sort out who's saved, who's not saved. And this is why I keep saying over and over, it's really just a personal decision. Do you know Jesus? are you following him in a relationship with him and when you are you know that you are are you gonna be perfect no (laughs) wish you could be wish I could be but we're not going to be perfect we should be getting more and more sanctified more and more perfect in our life but we're never going to get there and we don't need people tearing at us to try to help us get perfect because number one those that are tearing at us are not perfect either they just see us doing things they wouldn't do and they try to pin it down on us. It's the way people are. I mean if I'm if I'm doing the best I can and I'm going to please God, I'm doing more good than bad by their definition of good, then I'm okay. To be very careful that we're not judging one another. We put people in God's hands and not not sit there and judge. And it's not easy to get there. It takes long time to get to where you try not to judge people and and start not judging more than you judge. Because it's our human nature to judge. It's our human nature to compare, well, I'm doing this much better than these people. If I one from you, Pastor if it doesn't concern you, stay out. That's a very true statement. If it's not going to affect my life, why do I need to be worried about what you're doing because you stand or fall before God? He is the ultimate judge. He's the one that's gonna judge me. He's the one that's gonna judge you and he's gonna judge us by what he is taught. And it's very important that we just let things go. Live and let live you know, is a good motto to live by. You know, Hey, you know, you're you not living by my standards. Okay, you know, you're, you're gonna stand or fall before God. And this is very important. The terrors are going to be judging all the time because they're trying to make themselves look good. Well, I don't do this, this, and this, you do. They will never compare themselves to somebody who's doing better than them in in most areas because they don't want to feel bad. And this is why you'll hear people say, well, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven. Well, the bad news for them is God doesn't grade on a curve. He has an absolute standard and that standard is perfection. And for us, we need to be able to share with people God's standard isn't more good than bad. It's not even 99.9% good, which nobody would ever hit. 0.1% 0.1% or 0.0000001% is enough to keep you out of heaven because it's not perfection. And we need to be able to help people understand that point. And that's not easy for some people to understand that it is not anything about our goodness. Our goodness is, Isaiah tells us, is filthy rags. All our, all our righteousness, the best that I can do if I put it in front of God is filthy rags. Now, that doesn't mean it's worthless. It doesn't mean it doesn't have value. It just means as far as God's impressed, it's filthy rags. It's got, it brings good consequences and keeps us from the bad consequences of not being righteous, but it doesn't please God and get us into heaven. And so we want to keep that in mind. When we are tempted to judge people for their righteousness or lack of righteousness, we need to keep in mind that God is the judge and their righteousness isn't going to be worth anything. Our righteousness isn't worth anything, and if we know that our righteousness isn't worth anything, who are we then to turn around and try to judge somebody else? And God tells them, just let the tares grow, and the wheat grow. The wheat will grow in; you'll know the wheat. You'll definitely know the wheat because the wheat will produce a head of head of grain, and the tares do not produce a head of wheat. And at that point, they can cut out the the, the tares and harvest them. And as he says. They would go into the fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is the picture of hell that Jesus kept giving. There's outer darkness with flames and weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's no pleasure, no fun in hell. And this is when you talk to people about, you know, where will you spend eternity? You'll hear something as stupid as, well, I'll go to hell with all my friends. And we'll, and we'll have a great big party in hell. No, hell is more silent. Uh, solitary confinement, you will not be comforted in hell. Because they don't understand what that hell is an awful place that has no, no pleasure in it, And what they 're gambling on is that misery loves comfort, you know? so I'll, as long as I 'm having friends there, I don 't care how bad it is because I 've got friends who will just be miserable together for eternity you know they don't really th- know how stupid that sounds in the first place but that's what they're thinking we'll just be miserable together for you know but they don't think about it. it's eternal hell is eternal Oh, yeah you're going to have the the non-christians out uh, everywhere you go but the big point that's of scary. this is that the the wheat and the tares will grow together and not be distinguished until the judgment do you think in the world there's more tares there's more tares, more tares. Jesus said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And they give you all these really godly things. I fed the poor. I, I gave, to the, gave to the widows. I, I visited them in jail. I, you know, I fed, the, fed the hungry. And Jesus will say, depart from me. You know, even they say to cast out demons. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Because it was all in their own strength, their own righteousness that they were doing this for. So, yes, there's definitely more many are called but few are chosen there's all kinds of scriptures that talk about few and the remnant is always the remnant all through the scriptures those who follow god are always in the minority when moses leads the people out of israel there's a minority of people that are truly following god and a number of them that are just obeying because it's to obeying and then there's some that are just outright disobedient and through history, we see ebbs and flows where there might be a few more righteous because of a revival, but never really a big majority. Even, even in America during the great, the great Awakenings, there were a lot of Christians, but never the majority of the population became Christian. It might have gotten up to 30 or 40 percent, but never all the way to the majority. The thing that we always have to remember, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast everything about our salvation is grace. Everything about my works that I do for him is motivated by him, and he is the one that gives me the strength to do them if they're worth anything, and that's by grace. If I am if I am doing them in my own strength, the flesh does not profit anything, and it's good works in the flesh which God looks at and says it's not worth anything. So this is where it comes down to Yes, I choose to follow him to the best of my ability, but it's him that does the work in me. And this is why many people who are very high up, that are very visible in Christianity, and seem to be doing lots of great things, much of what they do is unrighteous works of the flesh that is going to burn up, because they do it in the flesh. And a lot of pastors have this problem, because there's days when I come and I'm not ready to speak, To speak in the in the spirit but I am paid to speak so I must speak and I know the difference when I when that's true because I know that it's me speaking and not God speaking through me and this is something we have to be careful of are we doing something just because we have to do something or or we feel we have to do something or are we being led by the spirit to do it Sometimes we open our mouth and God fills it in a mighty way. And I've had that many times where God, I just don't, I'm not ready for this. I need you to fill my mouth and he fills my mouth. When I'm witnessing, oftentimes this will be what happens. I don't know what to say and God just flows the words out. And we we can start with scripts. We can have ideas on what we want to do. We can have plans on what we want to do. But ultimately it has to be God who pours out of us. And this is going to be very critical for us to always remember what is he leading to do? Not I'm out here witnessing God because you told me to, but be ready, and that's a good start, but don't get me wrong, it's a good start to go out and and open your mouth to to say, God, I'm going to share with gospel with some people, but let him feed you know fill your mouth and and lead you. go you know, when you're teaching the same thing. When a teacher goes in, they have spent a lot of time studying. If they're worth their salt and they know pretty much what they think they got they want God to say where God they feel God's leading but and then they open their mouth and God should be ready to take over and lead them in another direction altogether sometimes but it's just opening up and saying God I want to be your child and I want to let you grow so we see here wheat and tares and both do what comes natural for that individual the world will do what comes natural to the flesh and that is going to be against God is in our nature the wheat is what we become when God changes us and gives us a new creation in our heart we are uh, for we are crucified to Christ and we're a new creation and brand new creation never before be seen and we become wheat and Jesus says that we are In Him, He he is the vine, we are the branches, and we draw our life from Him. And because we draw our life from Him, the Holy Spirit is filling us, we produce righteous, godly works. Not because of anything that's natural to us. And we've got to keep that in mind. And I've said this before. When you get offended, the first thing that's going to happen is your flesh is going to respond. Somebody just did something to make me mad. And my flesh is going to want to react. And if I'm not careful, it will react. The, the sign of maturity is my flesh starts to want to react and God comes in and says, no, you get to be crucified and we're going to show mercy to this person. We're going to show love to this person. Even though they might deserve to be de- destroyed and wiped out. And there are things that people can do that deserve that much punishment and God does deal that kind of punishment on people. If they hurt his children so severely, he will pour out wrath upon the people who give that kind of uh, activity to to his children. I have seen it happen in people's lives where they have been really punished for stepping out and going against God's people. It's not fun to watch because it's harsh. It really is harsh, but God knows whether that person will ever repent or not. He knows that. And if they're not going to repent, he's going to be very harsh on them. Otherwise, he'll be just harsh enough to bring them to repentance. And some people repent easily. You know, you get a compliant child, they're, they're ready to ask for forgiveness and break down with just a look at them sometimes. Then you get that strong-willed child that almost has to be beat to death before they, they will respond. <laughs> If they are saved, he will call them home early if they are that disobedient just, get it out of the way. just take them take the testimony away. The sad thing is they may not be saved if they're that disobedient and uh, if they're that disobedient we we would probably say it would be wise to treat them as a lost person and give them the gospel over and over again and let God yeah, try to bring them oh. That's again between them and God. If you've told them a number of times, and you know, then you've done your job. Uh, with most of my family, I don't every time I meet my family t- that are lost, give them the gospel because they've heard the gospel. Doesn't mean I totally don't give them the gospel, but I don't. You know, it gets obnoxious if you tell them every single time you see them, especially if you see them a lot, because they already heard the gospel. As long as you know you've given a clear presentation of the gospel then you could just wait for the time for God to fill your mouth and it might be the right time for them to hear. And as I've said before, the family is the hardest one you'll ever have to reach because they know you. Jesus, it says, did no miracles in Nazareth because the people knew him as a young child and did not, did not want to accept him as God. They saw him as a good child. This, was a, you know, this guy was never in trouble. You know, he always told the truth. He was a really good boy. And that's how they saw him. They never saw him for who he who he was. And because of their lack of faith, their lack of desire, he was never able to do much. I mean, I, I would probably say he didn't do that. It wasn't no miracles in Nazareth, but compared to other places where it was miracle after miracle, it would have been very small stuff in Nazareth. But outside of Nazareth, they started seeing him for who he was. And you're always going to have that trouble when you see your family because they're going to remember the little kid who, who misbehaved. They're going to remember the, the person who told lies to get out of trouble. They're going to remember the person who's had some highs and lows in their, in their life, and they get the excited times and then the times it fell away. They're going to remember all of this, which makes it very hard to reach family. Now, after a long enough period of life, time, and they see enough change in your life, they, they go, oh, this isn't one of those things where it's for a year or two, and they, and they stop doing it. They might listen. But even with most family members, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It can, so it's you know keep sharing the gospel once in a while. But be aware that you're probably not going to be the one that saves, you know, leads the, leads your family members to the Lord. It's going to be hard enough leading your friends to the Lord. They're going to be a little more receptive because they're supposed to like you. You know, if they're your friends, they're supposed to like you, so they're going to be a little more receptive to to your changed life and your message. Now, if your, if your friendship was based upon going drinking and drugging and picking up, picking up uh, uh, guys or girls, depending on your sex, <laughs> and, and you stop doing that, and this is usually what happens to a Christian in the first place. When they first get saved and they start sharing the gospel with people is the greatest chance they're going to have of winning a lot of their friends to c- Christ because they're excited and they're telling. Before long, those friends no longer hang out with you. Because they know that you're even if you stop telling them about Jesus, they know you're not there to do all the things that you used to do with them, and that means they kind of just push you away. And before long, all you have is your friends at church, and because all the rest of them are going, well, now you're 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 too different. You don't want to go out drinking. We want to go drinking. You don't want to go out doing drugs. You, we don't. You know, you don't want to go pick up pick up uh, people. We don't want to. You know we don't want to be with you you know you're just no fun you don't you don't curse and swear like you used to You uh if we get into trouble you're going to tell the truth and we don't want to be around you so we got that process and the longer you're in Christ the less unsaved people you're going to know unless you purpose to know some and that means workplace or go to some sporting events or you know do some hobby that puts you in with lost people and it's very critical that we spend some time around lost people other ways we have nobody to give the gospel to and it gets harder and harder as we go along it's so one thing i do appreciate about my second job there's much i don't appreciate it but there's things i do appreciate it there's lost people there that i get to work way around you know and talk to and meet and be able to share the gospel with now it's a little fine-tuned because i i work there and i can't just open up all the time but it's but I, but I have people to talk to, because we've got to keep in mind, we are born sinners that deserve hell, And if we act in the flesh, we're doing what we were planted to do, act in the flesh. And this is something we have to come, we've talked about this many times, this, this lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, those are in us. We are going to be awful, terrible sinners automatically. Satan doesn't have to do a thing to get us to sin. Now, he and the demons are often involved to put you in places where you're going to see the things that draw the lust of the eyes, you're going to see the things that bring into the pride of life, you know, and you can draw us into it, but he does not have to be there at all for us to sin. We can do it all on our own with no problem whatsoever. That is what we're told we all have from our sin nature. And this is why I keep saying all the time, I'm never surprised when a lost person does something wrong because that is who they are in the flesh. On the second side of it, I'm never surprised when a Christian does something wrong because if their flesh isn't crucified, that's exactly who they are, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the, the, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If our sin is, now I'm more sad when a Christian does something wrong, because I know they have the power in them not to. I'm really sad when I do something wrong in that nature, because I know that it's not who we're supposed to be. But with the power of God, we can live a crucified life that is victorious. But in our flesh, we will do the wrong things. Then Satan comes along and just helps us out a little bit. It's not a surprise to him. He knows, what we're, he knows everything that we're going to do, good and bad. He knows the times we're going to do, quote unquote, good in the flesh and let him do the work. He knows all of that. It, it doesn't surprise him and we've said this before God's you'll never hear God said, "Well, I didn't expect that" or "I didn't know that was going to happen." That's not in his vocabulary because he knows the beginning from the end and everything in between. So that we cannot have him just say, "Wow, I'm surprised. I didn't I didn't know that person was going to act that way." He already knows, he's already got the plan to fix anything that we have that we would do wrong that will hurt the chances of somebody getting saved. He's already got somebody else out there to to be ready to talk to them and help be able to bring them to conviction. Not necessarily get them saved, but bring them to the point of, I need a savior. And this is what's going to happen over and over again. Now, Satan does have an impact with us. I mean, he can put just that right image in front of us that will tempt us. Whatever that image might be. Whether it's uh, uh, the sin of alcohol or drugs or, or gluttony or lust or lying or covetousness. Whatever it might be we'll do them on our own without his help but he also knows how to put just the right circumstance in front of us to tempt us even further oh he's uh, he's just really good at what he does he knows us he's he's probably got computer files on every one of us (laughs) whatever his whatever his equivalent is you know let's see i've got this file on ralph what what will what will really tempt him he's starting to live in the spirit let's Let's throw something at him. But he is able to know exactly what it is that will tempt us the most. And he'll throw it out at us. And if we're not living in the, in the spirit and in having our flesh crucified, we will respond. And this is what I've said. The first thing that will pop up in our life is always going to be the flesh because we are flesh and blood. If somebody smacks you across the face, everybody's instinct is to, to get ready to fight. Now, some people will back down a lot quicker than others. Some that are combative will be ready to fight, and, and, and God is really going to have to get hold of them to keep them from fighting. But our first instinct is, I'm ready to fight, or you just wait till your back is turned and I'm going to make sure I get back at you. That's our first instinct. I am going to get back at you one way or another is our first instinct. Even if we're not going to fight right that moment. But the question is, how quick does God's thoughts come on top of it? Do I stew around in the, the flesh or do I, God, come along and say, No, be nice to them, be kind, be forgiving? And that's not normal. That is not the human flesh reaction to forgive. Oh, following God's rules is wonderful. When you're kind to them and you're not trying to get back at them, but if we live in the Spirit, there's benefits of living in the Spirit how does somebody argue with you when you're being nice to them you want to defuse an argument stop arguing walk away from it if you have to or say just make sure you say nice things back to them you know, we, we get to this place where the pride of life says I can't lose this argument I've got to win it and the more you get into I've got to win the longer the argument and the more vicious the argument usually gets but if I just back up and say is this really worth fighting over most of the time it's not worth fighting over it if the questions are is this a very important spiritual issue every once in a while it might pass that test you know it is spiritual the next question is will it matter a week from now how many times have you argued over something that totally didn't mean anything a week later you don't even remember what it was you were arguing about and you could think back to it and go why did I even bother getting so upset about it if it doesn't pass that test it's not worth arguing over and then the third part would be is is can it be redemptive because even if it's worth arguing and it's important is it going to be redemptive or is it just going to be destructive will it lead to a godly outcome possibly and this is something we have to be really to watch we fight over so many things that are worthless to fight over. Even as Christians will the Christian church has been split many times by fighting over things that have absolutely no importance whatsoever in the long run. And they've split churches. In the early days of the in the early days of the church in the first century, uh, the first uh, millennium, they fought over whether the communion literally became the blood and body of Christ or not and it split churches. Nowadays, it's not even considered an issue except for the very small group of churches that hold on to the fact that it literally becomes the body and blood of Christ instead of being just symbolic. So we see that problem. Then we see splits over how active is the Holy Spirit. Well, again, how important is that? I think the Holy Spirit is very active, but if but if you don't want to believe that he's active, you can live a defeated life if you want. It's not my problem if you live a defeated life. Eventually, you'll either get tired of living in defeat and recognize the Holy Spirit is active in your life and join, join the active camp, or you're going to be defeated for your entire walk of Christianity. Again, is it really that big a deal to argue over? No. You know, when I talk about it, there are very few things that are worth arguing over. God's word is true. And it is absolutely true, and it holds the moral absolutes that we are to live by. That is worth having some battles over. But even then, I'm not going to kick and scream and say, you must believe this. I mean, if you really don't believe it, I don't know how you can become a Christian if you don't believe it. But it's up to you. But I'm not going to relent and say, no, you can believe what you want. I'm going to tell you, it is absolutely true. So do you say, just say you're right and walk away? Depends on what you're talking about. Not necessarily going to say they're right. I'm just going to say walk away from it. I mean, if it's not important, I don't care if it's right or wrong at that point. I may tell them they're right. What do you think I and mean, then walk away? I probably won't even say whatever you think, because that's antagonistic. You're actually, you're actually trying to get the last word if you say that. Your goal is simply to leave the leave the argument. And I might even say, this isn't important enough to sit here and argue over. So. I'm gonna leave, leave it at this point. And be just about that flat, you know. It's hard when your emotions are running and you're absolutely sure the person's wrong and that you're right. The really sad thing is when you get done and you walk away and you realize that you were wrong, but your emotions got so involved in it that you were gonna to fight to the, to the death even though you were wrong. <laughs> Which is why it's so important that there's a time when it's just not that important. When I'm witnessing to somebody and they go, well, I don't believe the word of God, I will, I will give them the evidences for the word of God. And then it's like, well, I just don't believe it. I'm going, well, it's true whether you believe it or not, but, and have, it, you know, have yourself a wonderful day because I'm going to go talk to somebody else at this point. Or Jesus rose from the dead. That's very important. It's an absolute. You have to believe it to be a Christian. Am I going to sit there and fight tooth and nail with somebody who doesn't want to believe it? No, because again, what does that do? It puts up walls because when you're, when you're arguing with somebody, your defenses are up, you're not listening to anything they say. Their defenses are up, they're not listening to anything you say. Now, if you can have a nice, calm debate or discussion, then you can sit there and, and give it back and forth and, say, and, and make your points. But if you're finding you're getting angry or upset because they're not listening or they're not accepting the truth, it's time to drop it. Because all you're going to do is drive them further away from the truth because they're going to look, well, that's just another one of those fanatical Christians. You've got to believe exactly the way they believe or else. And this is why it's very important. We, know, we learn how to defend what we believe. We, know, we learn to, to give a reason for what we believe, but not with venom and anger involved. We, just, we need to learn to be able to just speak with absolutes and just matter of fact. If you find yourself getting emotionally involved in the defense and you've got to believe this or else then you might want to have to just step back and say we'll talk we'll talk again some other day. And if you do that, you might get a chance to talk again some other day. But if you keep coming at them in your in your persistence and 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 defensive positions and everything or aggressive attacking you're probably never going to get to talk to him again. We want to be very careful because there is black and white. And the world likes shades of gray. The world likes to have shades of gray. You know, it isn't right or wrong. It's just not as bad. And God's standard is, again, we go back to God's standard is perfection. And God's way is this way. And Christians are often accused of being black and white. And the world will say, you got to understand, it's not all you're not either good or bad there's all these shades in between you're right there's lots of shades of bad in between good but they're all bad okay again we go back to 1% of of not good in God's eyes is bad and deserves hell. so all these shades of grey that aren't good are black sin that sends you to hell And we see this all the time well yeah it's not that bad you know I I did it so that so-and-so wouldn't get into trouble I lied so so so-and-so wouldn't get in trouble I lied so I wouldn't hurt their feelings I I lied for whatever reason and I'm just not an out-and-out liar I just I'm trying to do good with it and God says no it's not the truth so therefore it is lying and it is bad I was only saying good things when I was gossiping about people. It's probably still not, not an area that you want to deal in because if you're gossiping about good, you'll eventually end up in bad. Build people up, but make sure you're telling the truth. And we see this over and over again. The world lives in a different place. And when we were talking about the truth project, God has one set of truth. Satan has hundreds of lies For each truth of God okay one way to heaven through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone Satan comes up and says well there's no there's no afterlife anyway Uh, you know do more good than bad Uh, there's hundreds of different religions any one of them will get you there Uh, if you just do more good than bad I mean you think about all the different things you'll hear about how to get to heaven Oh, you just keep trying you keep going into life get reincarnated uh, Hundred or so times and you finally get it right and you get to go to heaven. You know, all the lies that Satan has for each truth that God has. God says that uh, sex is between a man and a wife married <laughs> for life. Satan has all kinds of lies that, you know, do it with anybody you want, anytime you want, anything you want. Uh, you know, doesn't matter. Mono- monogamy is overrated. You know, all the things that he teaches that Satan gives out there and it's over and over anything that god has a truth in satan has multitude of lies and the world likes the idea of multitude of lies that way they can pick whichever whatever truth they they want to believe instead of having an absolute truth and our world is really pushing against the idea of absolute truth they they have this idea that truth is relative now nobody believes that truth is relative they'll say they do but you start pressing them, and they'll very quickly have an absolute truth. You go to steal the, you know, steal their car, and they're going to become very absolute about the fact that that's their car. That was one of my favorite things on the campus was to reach down and pick up some keys, you know, on the side of a purse, or or ask the guy, you know, can I look at your keys for a moment, and then start to walk away. They go, where are you going? You got my keys? I go, yeah, I got a, I got a car to sell, and it looks like I got a house here to. They go sell. He goes, well, you can't do that. I go why? They're mine. I go, I don't have any problem selling them. They go, well, that's what's wrong. I'm going. I throw back. Don't tell me you don't believe in absolutes. You understand there's absolute authority and absolute morals. You just don't want to accept it because you understand the consequences of it. And the world understands the consequences of having an absolute set of morals because somebody had to give the morals and that would be God and they know that if they believe in absolute morals they have to believe in God and have to do things God's way so they've already premeditated that they will not even if you were to convince them scientifically that there was a God who created everything they will not believe in him because then they would have to obey his rules and that is what happens in the flesh they don't want to obey God's rules So they will go through all manner of hoops to try to eliminate the idea of anything absolute and that there is a God. It's just a matter of they're going to live in their flesh unless they respond to God. And it takes God drawing them to him and then they have to be willing to listen to that drawing. And then somebody has to open their mouth at the right time to give them the gospel. But if they're not going to believe it, they're not gonna believe it. It's just really that simple. There are many, many millions of people that are not, and maybe even billions, that are not going to believe God's word because there's always a minority. We see it, again, we go back to, we saw it in the Exodus. We saw it through the kings, There, you know, an ebb and flow. We've seen it all through Christian days where there's an ebb and flow of, of high and low, but never the majority because the majority of the people are not going to give up their life and turn it over to God and even in the church it's sad to say that the majority in most churches are not saved they haven't given their life over to God they'll say the right words they'll speak the right words they'll they'll come to church every Sunday and and look good and and sing the songs and and tell you about how how much they love God and but it all comes down to trying to follow rules and it's not a relationship And I can't tell you over the years how many people I've seen in their 50s, 60s, 70s, all of a sudden turn to God and say, I haven't known this God that I've been supposedly worshiping my entire life. And all of a sudden they get saved and you see the difference in their life. And you see that they have a relationship with God all of a sudden. I was talking to a young man today who said he was a Christian all of his life, but he said he was only playing at it. Because when I went to prison, all of a sudden I realized I didn't know God. And he entered into a relationship with God. That is the majority of the people sitting in the pews. They're playing at God. They're, they're skirting the corners, you know, reading the Bible once in a while. You know, reading listening to the messages, but usually thinking about other things while they're listening. They're, how can I be good enough to please this God and stay out of trouble? But not necessarily know that it is religion you know that it's not religion and religion is a bunch of rules that you follow to please God, and it's a relationship with God a true Christianity is a relationship with God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and that is what changes us that's what pours out of us when we're in that relationship and he's the one that keeps the flesh crucified and pours out his spirit he's the one that changes who we are. And as we grow and we become more like him and we find ourselves doing the loving thing more often. We find ourselves becoming more forgiving. We find ourselves being merciful. When we're ready to do, when we look at that person that we just showed mercy to and love, and we go, wow, three years ago, I would have torn them limb from limb for doing this. And we say, God, thank you that you're growing me. You're changing me in our relationship. And it's very important. And then we get to be the wheat showing forth his, his life and he harvests all the tares and they're going to be sent they're going to stand before the white throne judgment and they're going to be sent to hell because they rejected Christ and they'll be sent to hell and then the new heaven and new earth will be created and we will rule with him in paradise forever looking forward to that day looking forward to the day when I learn something I don't forget it <laughs> Because there's so much I've learned over the years that I have forgotten and looking forward to the day when he teaches and we learn and we stay focused on what he's learned. We live in paradise. Can't even even imagine what that's going to be like. This world was created as a paradise. Adam and Eve were created to work in paradise. So we don't want to get this idea. um, How many people picture heaven as floating around on clouds, plucking a harp and singing praises to God all, all the time? That's got to be the most boring picture of heaven I can even imagine. And it's not biblical. The biblical picture shows business going on and, and, and commerce going on and, and things happening. But in a perfect environment, which we can't even fathom what a perfect environment will be like. What will work be like in a perfect environment? You might get a glimpse of it if you had ever had a job that you really, truly loved. And I've had a couple of those that I enjoyed them at least for a few years. And just enjoyed the work and I would go to work you know there's some jobs that I would have gone to just because I love doing them enough being a pastor is one of those things I would do it just because it didn't even if I wasn't paid you know and I, and God paid my bills and everything I would do it just because I enjoy doing it but God says this is what it's going to be there's going to be a perfect world a perfect place for us to live And at the end of days, the harvest will be made. The wheat and the tares will be separated. And there's an old saying, and I've said it before, there's two things that will surprise us in heaven. Those who are there and those who aren't there. Because there's going to be people that get to heaven and we're going to go, how in the world did you get there, Grace? Then there's going to be people we're going to be looking for because they were so big in the church and the religious scene and we're going to go, where's so-and-so? Jesus will say, I never knew them. And we're going to go, those would be the two things we're going to, because it's all based on grace. And even in our own thinking, we start thinking about something about works. Well, this person's going to have to be in heaven. Look at all the teaching they do and all the good works they do. They've got to be going to heaven. And Jesus says, no, it's all by grace. They know me or they don't know me. And we just look by what we can see. And we need to be very careful about what do we see, how do we, how do we react to it? Because he is going to respond to those who know him. All right, let's go back to uh, verse 31. Another rare parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing when you think about it. The mustard seed is a very tiny seed. Really, it is very small. And he says it's planted. And in this case, he says a huge tree. Now, I have never seen a mustard tree. Now, I have seen some very large mustard bushes. But I don't think I've ever seen a mustard tree. Now, they may get that big. But I think he's using this as an example of how beyond reason this is. And he says the birds of the air dwell in its branches and this is kind of an interesting thing because more normally birds in the scripture represent bad and demonic activity so it's kind of an interesting thing and he doesn't describe, he doesn't explain this this parable he just says your faith, you know, you're, it's like having the kingdom of heaven is like the mustard seed growing up into a huge huge tree and creating shade, kind of takes you back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he is his kingdom produces this great big tree, and it creates shade and food for for all the nations. And I got a feeling that's kind of the picture that it's bringing back. If you remember Nebuchadnezzar in the Book of Daniel, he has this dream where he's pictured as this great tree that grows and covers everything. Then he's cut down, and he's cut down for seven years, and he's humbled, and then he gets his kingdom back. But God says. The kingdom of heaven is this little seed that grows, and we think about this: the gospel message is so simple. We are sinners; we deserve punishment. Jesus paid the debt. Come to God, repent, and ask for the ask for his forgiveness, and accept Him, and you will be be made a Christian. Such a simple gospel, and how often do we make so much big problems with it. I know some people that I've, they've said, well, when so-and-so stops doing this sin, I'll go tell them the gospel. No, you tell them the gospel. They, we're not looking for people to get good before we tell them the gospel. Matter of fact, it's easier to talk to somebody who's bad because they know they're bad. Even if they don't know that certain sins are bad in their life, they know that they're bad and they know that they need Christ. Pharisees and scribes are very hard to, to witness to. Because they'll tell you things like, well, I'm a pretty good person. I don't need this God stuff. I'm a good person, and God's going to just accept me into heaven because of how good I am. We want to be very careful about that because it is so easy to do that. And I've talked to many people that will hammer somebody on their sin and then try to give them the gospel. I'm going, no, you turn it the other way around. You give them the gospel get them saved and then God will hammer them from the inside about their sin and this is any major sin that you might think of if you're talking to somebody who's a drunk don't worry about them being drunk just give them the gospel if they're a glutton you don't worry about trying to convince them that gluttony is a sin you just give them the gospel if they're living in fornication you don't try to convince them that fornication is a sin you just give them the gospel and then once they're saved God will get them in the Word of God and they'll realize that all these things are sin eventually if they truly have a relationship with God. And they will change the way they live. Our job is not to make them good. Our job is to lead them to Christ, lead them to the cross and let God do his work. And very important that we just remember that. The gospel is a simple message. You need to accept Christ as your savior because you're a sinner headed for hell. And they're not going to accept the the need for a savior until they know that they have punishment that they're facing. One of the things in the way of the master that they talked about was if you tell somebody that Jesus is your paid for your sin and your punishment, and you don't believe you deserve punishment, it's not good news. You, 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 it sounds like they're a lunatic talk, talking to you, which is why they're teaching us. You t- lead them to the fact that they're not good, yeah, that they're not good. And if God judges them by the standard of, of the 10 commandments, they're going to go to hell. And then you can give them the good news. <laughs> you convince them they're saved. Now you give them the good news that Jesus paid the price so that you don't have to pay the price. And then the last parable in this section is another parable spake unto you then. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it, the whole was leavened. All these things spoke Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable he spoke not to them. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. This idea of the kingdom of God being like leaven. Again, leaven in the scriptures is usually a picture of sin. And the kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven, it covers everything. Sin covers everything in your life, and it will grow and it will continue to grow. If you've ever made bread and you put yeast into it, you basically have to kill the yeast before it stops growing. It will continue to grow, because as long as it has any kind of sugar in the, in the batter to, to consume. Once it's done consuming the sugar, it will go dormant, but if you added more sugar to that mix, any form of sugar, milk, sugar, whatever, anything that it can feed on, it will grow again. It has to be cooked to be totally killed to, to no longer leaven. But, Jesus, but God, God is telling us that the kingdom of heaven will continue to grow as well. The goodness that is out there will continue. When you live for Christ, it makes people wonder. As Amy says, sometimes they really wonder, like, how can you be so nice? How can you be so kind? What, why are you different? They may never ask you, but they will notice. If you are truly different and they will wonder why you're different and they'll give you the opportunity to share with them this is the best this is the best way to do it in a workplace where you're not paid to talk to people about God you live a lifestyle that is so different that people go how can you be so different how can you stay calm when all this is going wrong how can you know how can you how can you, you know how can you say you trust God it's real fun telling the lost world, you know what God did? He gave me this last, this last weekend. And they'll look at you like you're nuts, but you keep doing it, and they'll really go, this guy really believes that there's a God meeting his needs. And they'll eventually ask you a little bit about it. And by using those kind of entrances to open it, you may even open up conversation. Do you really believe there's a God like, oh, yeah, let me, if you really, if you have time and you want to, I'll tell you all about the God who is a personal God that wants to know you. And you leave it in their ballpark to say yes or no. But we keep going at this. We keep saying it's going to grow. God's kingdom is going to grow and get bigger because we bring him in. We bring him into every situation that we are in. Have you ever had somebody get mad at you just because you walked through the door? You didn't even say anything about God? And they go, quit talking about God. I haven't said anything yet. You bring God into the middle of the situation and they just know that God is there and it's very interesting to watch the lost world react to God's Spirit and it's all this idea that he is there God is powerful and he is powerful enough to make his presence known and his presence will convict people whether you say a word or not it will convict people but sometimes we should and must speak some words because words are how they're going to get saved All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. And Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. Help us to see that you want us to live in the way that you want us to live. Help us accept you crucifying our flesh and living through us, that we will be examples. And help those who don't know you choose to come to you in your son's name. Amen.